when you think about uh, having Christ captivate your life, to be abiding in him and staying close to him, and then the word transforming you through the power of the spirit using the word in your life, you, you should then turn around and look and say, hey, what difference could I make in the world around me? I, I want to be on a mission for other people to know Christ in the way I've known him. And that's what every true disciple would ask. And so we would call ourselves not just a Christ-exalting and a word-centered church. That's all well and good for us as individuals. But we want to be both a disciple-making, that is, we're, we're making disciples inside these walls. And when you go to life groups or small group ministry during the week, or when you join a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study, or where you just make a friend in our church and talk about the Lord as you go out for coffee. That's strengthening disciples in our church. So we're disciple-making but we're also on the lookout. We're not just happy to be our own holy huddle here at Hickory Bible Church, but we're on a mission to bring other people to Christ, that people would uh, know who he is by knowing us, as in, you might want to think of it this way, we bring Christ to people by way of our example, and then we bring those people to Christ by pointing them to his word, who he is and what he said. And so that's kind of putting both a mission-driven and disciple-making church into one. And that's where we'll land today in one passage. We don't need to separate out being a disciple-maker from being mission-driven because they are one and the same in the sense what God is doing within our own lives inside of our church should be seen in the mission we carry out outside of here. So we're going to see those together here in today's text in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And we are at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, even as we were at the beginning of it, at the beginning of December, when we started an Advent series in Matthew chapter 1. And the reason that's on my mind is as I was coming to the end of it, and I preached Matthew 1 and the genealogy, and we saw the grace of God and all those that throughout the history of redemption, God has taken from the most unlikely of circumstances and saved them and set them apart, that that gave us encouragement as we look to Christ's first coming. And now as we are thinking about his next coming, when he returns uh, one day, we actually see that, hey, he takes us and he sets us apart for a reason. And so it kind of, in an interesting way, as we'll close today in Matthew 28, brings some closure, I guess, to what we started in December. That we can see how the great turnaround, even in this gospel, is think about Jesus coming, the Son of God, as a lowly babe in a manger. That's where his life started down here. And now here he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and victorious over sin, Satan, and death, about to leave the earth from a mountain. What a contrast. What a turnaround just within the life of Christ, from the lowliest of beginnings to the highest of finish. And, and here's the good news to us. He does the same. When you think where you come from and how it, it didn't matter whatever, whatever you brought to the table or really lacked, he could take you from where you were, whatever low, humble estate you were in at the beginning when you first heard of Christ to where you will be when he brings you home. And, and so we see even a bit of our own lives in this great turnaround here today. And it is not just something wonderful to observe, but to be part of. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is not just a, a wonderful thing to see the authority and the power and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is, is Lord over all. But it's actually where we get our most basic, fundamental marching orders from him. And so there's a lot here. 
Uh, I do want to say on the, on the front end of this that when we talk about the Great Commission, that uh, you look out and see a great crowd this morning here and don't want to assume that when I say the Great Commission, everybody gets it. Here's why. I was reading uh, some, some research that a group that uh, does statistics, interviews, and tries to find out what people believe, um, uh, Barna, and they uh, maybe are the most reputable Christian um, interview research place, and they, they have a passion to constantly be trying to get a pulse on where people are. And they did an interview a couple years ago. They went out and polled churchgoers, 2018, all across our country. Now, regular attending people that go to church. And they asked them this question. Um, have you heard of the Great Commission? They asked that question. Have you heard of the Great Commission to churchgoers? Here's the results. 51% of them said no. Haven't heard of it. Churchgoers. 6% said I'm not sure. I guess a maybe. Um, 25% said Yes, I've heard of it. I don't know what it is or where it's found, but I've heard of it. So I don't know if that does much better. 17% said, yes, I know what the Great Commission is, and it's there in Matthew 28. 17%. Sad, isn't it? Churchgoers. Only 17%, according to this survey, know the Great Commission. Which is what we're here to do. So a lot of churches could be out there thinking they're doing a fine job only because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. One, demo, one slice within that pie, there was some um, other you know, questions on the survey. One, it was they gave a multiple choice trying to help people out. Hey, here's uh, four verses. Uh, which of them do you think is the Great Commission? And only 30% picked one out of four guests that it was Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The uh, demographic group within that study is, you know, demographics go, you got the, uh, those of you under age 25, I think, are Gen Z, somewhere between 25 to 45 are uh, millennials, Gen Y, Gen X. Uh, I, I emphasize that feeling part of Gen X. Somewhere in, you know, low 40s to, if you were born in 1980, uh, to maybe people in their mid-50s, and then baby boomers, you know, mid-50s to mid-70s. And of all those groups who did the worst, and all the millennials are just getting ready, bracing themselves because they always get made fun of. No, sadly, it was the baby boomers. 56% didn't know what the Great Commission was. Why is that tragic? They've been hearing it the longest. They've been a churchgoer more, longer than anyone, likely. And don't know the Great Commission. So I, I give you all that on the front end so that if you have no idea what the Great Commission is today, then here's a chance to, as we've been looking in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, uh, be instructed on it, be taught about it, but see it as useful as well. It's life-changing. It's life-giving. It, it gives us what we're here to do on this planet. And those of us that do know it, to see it with fresh eyes and be just as excited about it today as we've ever been. So uh, follow along as I read. Uh, Matthew 28, I'll start in verse 16 and go down to verse 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is God's word to us. May his spirit teach us and work through us. So as we close this series out on being a mission-driven Christian and a disciple-making Christian, we want to see that to, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is even within that name, that idea, our marching orders. If we are called disciples of Jesus, then that identity then determines our activity. In the same way, and I hope this is simple enough analogy, uh, whatever your identity is, as a worker tomorrow determines your activity. If you are a teacher, that's your identity, you go to teach. If you are a cook, you're gonna show up at work tomorrow and cook. If you're a student at LR, you show up and study. Student study, I don't know, maybe it connects. But that's what you do. And as a disciple, then simply from that identity becomes our activity, we make disciples. And just to clarify, because I grew up in a, in a mile-wide, inch-deep evangelicalism that uh, it was more caught than taught, as you would kind of pick up if you were hanging out some believers, and, you know, you're talking about this, and, and somebody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, a disciple is like a real follower of Jesus. Like, I'm just a Christian. The disciple was for the really committed, and then from the disciples, the super committed, you get the missionaries. And that's kind of how the church works. You know, there's levels of commitment to Jesus. And it's, a, it's an entire farce. It's a misnomer that to be a disciple is to say everything you need to say about your Christianity. It determines who you are, who your master is. That's disciple, a follower, a learner of who? A master. And so to say I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's everyone. Now you're either a good one or one that could use some improvement. But there's, that's maybe the spectrum, but we're all the same in the sense of disciples, followers, learners of Jesus Christ who have been born again by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and the Gospel. And so Jesus, in this great commission, has um, at least 11 disciples. You see there in verse 16. And he's about to give them a charge. And I don't want to say a final charge because this isn't Acts 1. Acts 1 takes place in Bethany, about two miles to the east of Jerusalem on Mount Olives. And Mount Olive, there are olives on Mount Olive. And that's what's happened in Acts chapter 1, where he goes back up to heaven. This is in Galilee. And Galilee from Jerusalem is a good five to six day journey. So just for those who are paying attention to your different gospel accounts, we don't want to say, hey, these are the final marching orders because there would have been more that Jesus taught in those last days. But this is big enough that it's where the gospel writer Matthew wanted to end his account of the life of Jesus Christ. 
So we are to pay attention to it and to see that we get a very important instruction from Christ here. He's there with at least 11 disciples. Why say at least? Uh, Because when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Could some mean that there was more than the 11? Matthew is saying, hey, these 11 were there, but there were more than that. We know from uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, when Paul is talking about the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, he mentions in verse 6 that 500 saw him at the same time. That could be this occasion, which would then explain why there could be some who are worshiping and there could be some who are doubtful. But the reason I bring up the doubtful side is, um, is to show that when Jesus comes up and, and right out of the gates, he doesn't give them, verse 19, their commission. He gives them something else in verse 18. Our first point this morning, he gives them a reminder of who has the power, who has absolute sovereignty. Who is entirely in control of every molecule in the universe? It's right there. Jesus comes up and speaks to this group of worshipers and some doubters, even though they're seeing Jesus in the flesh. All the evidence is there. And there's some doubting. So he comes up and to maybe encourage those who are worshiping and to challenge those who are doubting to tell them, look, if you have any doubts about what life's going to be like following me from this point on. Rest your doubts here. All authority has been given to me in the heavens and on earth. Do you need any more power than that? The authority of my word will have no rival from this point on. In our home this past week, during family Bible time, we got into a robust Theological discussion as we were talking about the sovereignty of God. And one of my children asked a great question. What if there was a Cheez-It that didn't want to obey God? Would said Cheez-It, not a whole box even, an individual Cheez-It. If it wouldn't obey the sovereign God, is that Cheez-It more powerful than God? So I had to think about that one for a moment. A rogue Cheez-It. And I said, listen, if that Cheez-It doesn't have to obey the authority of God, then he must be more powerful. So yes, that Cheez-It would be more powerful if it didn't have to listen to whatever God was ordaining for its life. This is how I have to answer them. This, that's the real test. I mean, you could come down and, and challenge me on something this morning, but I fear the question of the Cheez-It. And if you have kids, so should you. They come up with the best questions. Their minds are curious in the most precious of ways. How does absolute sovereignty work? That's what's behind that question. You get that, right? Just how sovereign is God? Just how much authority does Jesus, 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 wow, I'm done with that. Guarantee I say it again before the end of the sermon. How much authority does Jesus have? It's everywhere. And so you start naming names and you're asking about it and saying, if he's not sovereign over that, if that doesn't bow to him, then I guess he doesn't have all authority, does he? And that's what he wants these worshipers and some of these doubters to see. I've got it. I'm good. I, I died. Some of you were scared. Some of you went into hiding for those two days. 
Some of you have been even hiding since I came back. But I'm good. All authority has been given to me. I I have no rival. There's nobody contending for the throne anymore at this point. I wouldn't have been surprised if maybe some of them, the light bulb went on of um, the phrase that he, he used most often in Matthew to describe himself from the book we've been studying prior to the Advent series, the book of Daniel. If you want to turn there, because we're going to be going back there next week, starting back in Daniel 8. But I wouldn't be surprised if Daniel 7, 13 and 14 came to some of their minds. Because he loved calling himself the son of man. And it wasn't to emphasize merely his humanity. Though it would have suggested that we're not talking about some angelic being here. We're talking about the son of man who can be identified with us. But he can do something that none of us could do. What can the son of man do? Daniel 7.13 when he sees a vision of the future. And behold, with clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, and was presented before him. And this is what the Son of Man received from the Ancient of Days. To him was given. Same phrase in Matthew 28, 18. All authority given. Dominion, glory, a kingdom. You want to talk about absolute sovereignty? Here's a description of it. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. What does God's absolute authority in Jesus Christ mean for you? That you would serve him because he's your master. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So back to Matthew 28, 18, Jesus echoing Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is saying, I've now been given it. That future prophecy that Daniel had hundreds of years ago in Babylon with believers in exile, wondering if they will ever have power again. Here's the vision Daniel was given, and now it's come to its completion. That authority over all kingdoms and dominions and every nation and tribe and tongue has been given to one person only. And it'll last forever. And it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he's telling this group of followers, it's me. And so in them being told who he is, This now will dictate what they can do. That this authority he has now translates into their responsibility. That this power that is only God's to have now will be turned into in light of that authority I have. I've got now a word of comfort and instruction for you. When you think about the authority that Jesus Christ has over a believer's life. It's a comfort in that what do we have to fear? If he has all authority in heaven and earth, and he is who Daniel 7, 13, and 14 says he is over every person, every creature, every object, inanimate or animates, everything, everything, everything. If he has all that authority, what do we have to fear? That's a word of comfort, isn't it? Yet, it's also a word of instruction, might I even say warning. If he has all authority to speak over every person in existence, who are we to resist? Who are we to disobey? Who are we to to say, maybe, I'll think about it. So it's a word of comfort and instruction, is it not? We get both of it in verse 18. 
when we really wrestle with and, and measure our life up to the, the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord, oh, does that bring me comfort in my fears? Who have I to fear? And oh, does it bring a weight and reality of my duty and responsibility? Who would I be to say no? To disobey what he's going to tell me I have the responsibility to do. It's a both and. And so let's see what he commands us to do. All power is God's and now all privilege is ours. And before I break out the four main words you need to know from the Great Commission so you can pass that survey when Barna gets around to come into Hickory. You'll know, I not only know it, I'll tell you the four words that comprise it. But I want our hearts to be in the right place to receive it. That when I talk about responsibility, your heart can go in one of two directions. It's all about the duty or it's all about the privilege. Do you see the difference between the two? Any authority in your life, a boss, a parent, whatever, you have a response to that authority, which is the responsibility I have underneath that person, I may just see it all as my duty. I just got to do it. But there's something different about somebody who leads you and loves you and is authoritative in your life where you say, I'm not saying it's not my duty, but man, is it my privilege? You get that, right? If you're an athlete and you had the choice of colleges, you know, to go play for any coach and they all seemed pretty equal and you knew you would have a duty, a responsibility to show up at practice at six and that's not going to be fun and, and they own you. Wouldn't the tipping point be there would be one coach amongst all those that you would say, I not only know that I'll have to play for that guy if I sign up, but I want to. It would be my privilege to be on that team. And that's the heartbeat behind the Great Commission. That we would say, yes, they are, these are commands that I can obey or disobey, but I get to do it. I don't. It's not merely that I have to. And to work through that today is, is you hear these commands in the Great Commission. Because they are commands. They're, they're imperatives. They're things we must do as part of being a disciple. So let's break them out. Talk about the privilege that is ours in being charged to do four things. And here are the four words to remember. They're right in front of you. They're all action verbs. Go, make, baptize, and teach. That's the Great Commission. If you understand those four words, go, make, baptize, and teach. So let's just, real simple, as, as, as simple as I can make it, just walk through them in order. Except I'm going to mess it up. Because it doesn't quite arrange itself the way it looks. So your English Bible says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And uh, that therefore is what carries the force of Jesus' authority. So you could underline that and draw an arrow back to the word authority in verse 18. Because he has all authority, I get a therefore. Because Jesus is Lord of my life, I'm a disciple of his, I'm under his authority, I'm under his reign and rule, therefore this is what I'm to do. It just comes with the territory. But again, it's a privilege, isn't it? For what he did for me. He loved me enough to die for me. So tell me what it is I'm supposed to do. In about one verse. First, go. But see that go, 
and this is, uh, you know, let's get our nerd caps on. In the English translation of the original Greek, that word go is actually, it's called a participle. And what that means is, don't be frightened off by it, is it's this idea, it's the idea of a verb that's subservient to a main verb in that sentence. As in, it, it follows in command. There's a, there's a main verb, if you remember this in English class, in every sentence. That's the main thing you're to do. And the main verb in verse 19 is make disciples. It's one word. It just turns this noun, disciple, into a verb. Discipleize or go make one. However you want to think of that in your brain. The main word in verse 19 is make disciples of all the nations. And so this word go in, in a participle form, though it's in front of make, it's saying, how am I to make a disciple? The first thing I'm to be doing is going. I'm to be moving. I'm to be looking around me, taking in my surroundings and seeing that the opportunity is everywhere. It doesn't mean I have to go across the world to do it. Just think of that logically. If for the history of the church, we all had to go somewhere else, as in pick up and move somewhere else, then we would leave nobody in the place we are. And so I get over to that foreign country, meet that guy in Romania and say, hey, here I am from the US going to your country. Would you mind going back? Because I'm not there. So can you learn my language and then go back to Hickory and preach the gospel there because I came over to preach it to you? It wouldn't work that way. We'd just be in this one big mass transit of going. Falls apart, doesn't it? Now, it's awesome when somebody does feel a burden to go to a place they feel there is no gospel witness. Amen. That is a part of going, but if you think of it this way, if you're going to be worth your salt and going, you should be doing it right here. We're excited that there's young people in our church that want to go on the mission field. There's a handful of them. They, they want to go full time. First qualification, we're not going to export that which we wouldn't import. Right? Right? Like if, if somebody's just fired up to go share the gospel overseas and we say, tell me about your discipleship in Hickory and they draw a blank. We're not sending that. When I go to Lowe's this spring to put some flowering plants in my landscaping, which one am I going to pick? The one that has nothing on it that's dead and dying or the one that has some life? What am I going to export from Lowe's to put into my landscaping something that's alive, not something that's dead. And, and so the point is, if you're going to be going, I got to go somewhere else for this thing, but you're not doing it right around you, then you shouldn't be going. You'd just be doing it here. And then let the fruit of your life be such, it's so undeniable that when you say, I'd like to go over to that place, the, the sending agency or the local church around you would say, absolutely. Look at the fruit in your life. Of course we'd want to export that. So going doesn't have to mean just immediately pick up and go. The main verb is make a disciple. And you just do that as you're going about in your way of life. Your everyday existence. That's what you do. So going is, is built into this idea of making a disciple. It's just you look around and you start there. So to talk, let's talk about one feature of this making disciples of all the nations. And it's because I don't want to assume anything about the Great Commission. I mentioned this earlier that if you're like, well, what is a disciple, Adam? If I had to define it, a disciple is a follower and learner of Jesus Christ. The, the word disciple, if you want to just, you know, 
reduce it down to its two component parts. It, it's a learner and it's a follower. And here's why that's a helpful little paradigm. Because learner suggests the idea of teaching, right? You're learning something, you're being instructed, and that's part of discipleship. And following is the idea of somebody's modeling it to you, and as you disciple someone else, you're modeling it to them. And so it's the example to follow. And was Jesus not the perfect teacher for a disciple to learn from? And was he also not the perfect model of what it was to look like for them to follow after? So if you're trying to kind of get, like, um, get your feet underneath you and making a disciple, whether you want to be discipled by someone else or you want to disciple someone, just ask yourself the question, okay, is the person I'm interested in following, or not only is their life attractive with the fruits of the Holy Spirit, Christ in them, but when I engage them, they're going to instruct me from the Word of God. Likewise, if you want to be discipled about, from somebody and they're just, they, they just have a bunch of Bible knowledge, but you don't see fruit in their life, why would you want to learn from them? If you don't see it in action, it goes back to the last two sermons, doesn't it? The, the truthfulness of the Word of God and the usefulness of it. That the person I would want to follow and be discipled by knows the truthfulness of it. They can teach it to me. But also, I see the life of Christ in them. And so, you know, just think of this as you want to disciple someone else. The starting point most often isn't somebody walks up to me, hey, Adam, I just hear you can really uh, teach the word of God. Like I'm saying, if they didn't know I was a pastor, that was probably a bad analogy to use me. But say somebody didn't know me from anybody. You know, they just don't pick you out in a crowd and say, you look like the type of person that can teach me. What do they usually come up and There's something about your life that's attractive. So think of discipleship this way. And just write these words down. Life attracts. Truth transforms. Life models. Truth explains. And that life, truth, life, truth, life, truth. It just carries your discipleship along the entirety of the way. Because it is a, a, a real follower of Jesus' life that you look at and say, I want to be like that. But then you go to get to know them and you see that they don't have some secret recipe. They, they have this. And so they take you back to this. And then there's parts of it they're teaching you. And you're like, wow, that's, that's something. I don't know what that looks like. But then you're looking at their life going, oh, their life actually looks like that. They're doing it. And when they're failing in doing it, they're, they're modeling to me what repentance looks like. And then I go back to the truth. And that's truth that transforms you. Look, my life can't transform anybody's. But the word of God can. Now, my Bible sitting here, just sitting, can't really attract anybody. But it can transform you. And so you put those two things together as a disciple maker, don't you? It's that life in you, the Holy Spirit filling you, moving you along. That People are going to be around you and ask you, what's different What's up with that? And you're like, this is what's up with that. This is it. And it's the word of God used by the spirit of God in me to make me more like Jesus Christ. So that's what a disciple is. Notice also that he doesn't say make attendees. Make converts. What do I mean by that? Make attendees. Just get me a big crowd. That's all you're going to do the rest of your existence. So just... Build a big enough auditorium where a bunch of people would want to show up and just build me a crowd. It doesn't say make attendees. And when you build me that big crowd, then do something to really rile the people up and get them all emotional and then um, say something really, uh, really um, sentimental about Jesus and, and make them all weepy and come down and make a decision. 
from that attendee, make a decision, and then catalog that decision, and there you go. No, he says, I want a disciple. I want somebody that's going to, for the rest of their life, follow me to the very end and learn from me everything that I've taught. Make a disciple of Jesus. I'm all about seeing people converted. I don't have the power to do it. I can preach it. You could be hearing the word of God today. The power is in the preached word. It's not in me. So I'm not trying to make a convert. That's God's job. But I can put before you the power of the gospel for you to hear today. And for you to see your need for a savior if you're not in Christ. And for your heart to feel conviction over your sin. And then for you to cry out, have mercy on me, God, the sinner. Because you are a God who loves to save. That's the power of the gospel that transforms. That's where it's at. And when that person comes under that conviction and is, is, is born again and becomes a disciple of Jesus, what's the next step in the process? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. After coming to faith, making a disciple, going out, somebody is born again by the work of God in their life. What's the first baby step of obedience? Baptize them. Not, don't just skip over that to teach them to observe all that I commanded you? No. He, he gives some um, ink to that statement in this final teaching in Matthew's account. Baptize them. I'm giving you a long runway to get those steel-toed boots on right now. Somebody texted me last week. I need to start, you need to start warning me when I need to put those on if you're going to step on my toes today. And this is the part of the passage that steps on toes. And I am not going to go into the entirety of the New Testament and church history on differing modes of baptism. I just want you to hear the words of Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth that in making a disciple, the first step of obedience is to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think that's convincing. I don't think I need to go further down there. I do want to highlight, because Jesus does, that in baptizing, we recognize the work of the triune God. Just take a look at that. One, name. In the, not the names, three and one, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand that it's a work of our triune God, the work of God the Father in your salvation, that he is given glory. Why? Because he loved you before the foundation of the world. You were predestined to sons in love, Ephesians 1 says. It was the plan of the Father to save you in eternity past. So God the Father was at work, believer, in your salvation it's amazing to think about, but it wasn't enough, was it? It was the work of the Son, that the Son of God, the Word who became flesh, came down from heaven, set aside his rights and privileges, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, but for our sakes, God came and lived 30 years, as far as we know, not sinning once, so that he could be the perfect substitute for the sinner who sins every day. 
and took, took the scorn and the shame of the cross that I deserved. And he went there in my place. And the son did that. And he rose again and defeated sin and death. That's what the son did for my salvation and yours. But still, that wasn't enough. Then there was the work of the Holy Spirit, who in, in real time, like right now, a person who's in this room and hearing the work of God on their behalf and their salvation has a stone heart that cannot be changed by my mere words. The Spirit has to give you life. He has to blow, John 3 says, like the wind that you can't see where it was coming from nor where it is going, but you see its effect. It's him who gives life. And so it's no small thing for us to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit because mind-blowing that all three were working in your salvation. What a privilege it is to be baptized in that name, is it not? So here's my hope out of that. I hope that that's powerful enough for some of you who need baptized, who have no reason not to be baptized other than you just haven't wanted to get baptized. I know you're out there. I don't have any prophetic understanding. I just know there's people out there because there's people out there that are always disobeying, believers. And for one reason or another, and probably more than anything, fear of man, they don't want to be baptized. And, and Jesus is just saying, look, just do it. Just do it. We have two people going to get baptized next week. And I was doing a little looking ahead on the calendar. And I, I mapped out till Easter. And I just said, Lord, what if, what if just out of a result of just the simplicity of baptize them? That we could have two baptisms every week until Easter. Ten weeks away, 20 people baptized every week, somebody's in there. What effect do you think that would have on our congregation? You know, church history would call that revival. Why? Because revival happens when people obey. When, when people just turn. Believers, children of God. Just say, what am I doing not obeying a clear command of God in my life? I want to obey him. And that, that little leaven leavens the whole dough in a good way. So imagine how encouraged your heart would be each week for the next 10 weeks to see somebody getting baptized, to hear the gospel played out in a different person's life every week. And all it is is an act of obedience, the first act of obedience. And then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, then you get the whole lot of it after that. And I've never gone through the Gospels to say, what are all the commands that Jesus taught them? Well, we have the ones that have been recorded by the Gospel writers, but John also records that if everything Jesus said and did were written down, it would fill what? All the books in the world. So <laughs> um, clearly, we can't say that, okay, you know, if I'm going to be a perfectly obedient disciple of Jesus, I've got it. No, look, uh, the law and prophets are summarized in what? Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a good starting point if you're like, man, I bet there's so many commands of Jesus to do. I would just, you know, put them in those two categories. How am I doing loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How's my devotional life? How's my communion with Christ? That's, that's loving God. How's my worship 
And um, how am I doing loving my neighbor as myself, the people around me that I can see and touch and know? That'd be a good starting point. But back to my, my, my prayer for today was that our heart attitude would see this all as our greatest privilege and, and not, as 1 John 5 says, the commandments are not burdensome. The truly growth in our lives as children of God is when you just, you really can say, I, I don't see a command in scripture that in my heart of hearts really isn't a burden. Now, is, it doesn't mean it's not hard to do, right? It's hard to obey. We got the, it's the world, our flesh, the devil working against us to obey. But I think in a true believer's heart, in your heart this morning, you don't say his commandments are burdensome. Why? Because you love him, don't you? And you love his commands. They're the delight of your life. It's just difficult to make that connection between what I know is true in my head and what I know is true in my heart to living it out. But they're not a burden, are they? They're life. His words are life. And we have the privilege of living them out. So there's your four words for the Great Commission. Maybe just in, in your own mind now, remember them. I'm to make disciples, and I do that by going. I'm looking wherever I am. You got a fishing hole. One of my mentors used to say that. Adam, you have a fishing hole that I don't have. You're going to meet people I won't meet. So put your line down there and fish. It's just, that's what going is. Where you are, fish. Make, make that disciple then by teaching them the steps of obedience, being baptized, coming to faith, and then making that faith known. And then lastly, teaching them to observe what Jesus has commanded. And you don't have to do all that if you're making a disciple. You have the partnership of the local church. You have resources out there galore to help somebody take those steps of following Jesus faithfully. So that's, that's the privilege that's ours. But um, lastly, there's a, a promise made. And really in verse 20 now, this brings uh, the, the power that's God's and the promise that is God's kind of together in a way. Of course, you know me. I like sandwiches. And I see a sandwich. Yes, I've got some things to do in verse 19. Going, making, baptizing, teaching. But what I have at the beginning and end of that, it's with its arms around it, is the grace of God giving me power and giving me a promise. What's that promise? I am with you, Adam, even to the end of the age. That's the promise that belongs to God. Just as the power and authority belong to God, and it's my privilege to obey him, now I have his promise that he is with me. He says, lo, as in behold, look up, listen up. Uh, don't, don't just walk away now. Maybe you're all fired up to go and do. I want to tell you one more thing you need to know before you go. I am with you always, always, every day to your last day. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think why Matthew maybe chose to end here, and I won't know until I meet him in heaven, but isn't um, I am with you kind of uh, an echo of something we heard at the beginning of Matthew? Who's going to be with us? What promise was made to the believers in Matthew 1.23? What, what promise was spoken by the Lord through the prophets to Joseph? Behold, the virgin shall be with the child and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was a promise at the beginning. And now it's a promise at the end. And, and, and the promise of Jesus to be with us is, is the greatest promise there is. 
You know, when we were in Matthew 1, 1 uh, through 8 or 17 in December, we saw, you know, there were some great promises just built into the names of those guys in Matthew 1, 1 in this gospel. Weren't there some great promises uh, that Jesus, the promised Messiah, would be the son of Abraham? And think about the promise to Abraham. Yeah, you're going to have to leave your homeland and your family and the people you love, but I'm going with you. And through you, you'll be a blessing to the world. How would that promise be fulfilled? Through David? You see, there's a different promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Not, not just that he'll, he'll bless the world through you. Through David, the world will be ruled. But none of those names on the list could bless the world and none of those names on the list could rule the world. There's somebody missing. And it's the name above all names. That for the world to be blessed through Abraham, Abraham and for the world to be blessed and ruled through David the king, Jesus has to come. And he has to live and die and rise again so that all the blessings of salvation could go to the nations and the rule of God, of God dwelling with man, can now come through Christ. That's the big connection that Matthew is making from the beginning to the end. And he puts it for us here so that we would see that the promise is everything to us. His presence, the presence of God would go with us. And it goes with you today if you're a follower of Jesus. Think of how great that promise is. Sometimes we have to look at it from a different angle. How would you live differently when you read that promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age. How would you, how would you live differently today if that promise meant physically he would be next to you? Like if you, if you walked out to your car and got in the driver's seat and looked over and there in the passenger seat is Jesus. I said, I'm with you. Where do you want to go? And you're like, uh, uh, Wendy's? You know? You'd be shocked. I don't think you'd know what to say. He says, I'm coming with you to work tomorrow. Who have you been afraid to share the gospel with? Would there be a person you wouldn't talk to if Jesus was literally, physically with you? Come on. You'd be bold, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd be, I've wanted to tell you, it's lunch break. I've wanted to tell you about Jesus. May I introduce you to him? Would you be afraid to do it? I don't think you would. Would there be a place you would be afraid to go? Name it. Name the worst country for persecution. And he said, I'm going with you. You'd say, I'm going. I may not even have a choice in the matter, do I? What obstacle in your personal life what challenge, what struggle if you had Christ next to you, wouldn't you feel like you could finally overcome? And if you could, every time it comes back up again, you could turn to him and like, here I am again, Lord. Um, I can't do it. And you would say, yes, I can. He's right there. So if that's true, why isn't verse 20 true in our hearts with eyes of faith? He's with us. He's with you. So who won't you talk to? Where won't you go? What can't you do if you take him at his word? 
It's an amazing thought, isn't it? It gives us fresh eyes to see him in his power and to, to hear his promise and then to say, of course, what a privilege it is to be a Christian, to be a disciple. There's no going back. And that's, that's the awesome thing to leave here with in your mind is when you are a Christian, a disciple, a follower, a learner of Jesus, there's only forward. There's no going back. Because he's with you and he's not going back. He's not going back with you to an old life. He's not going back with you to an old problem. He's not going back with you to the old gang. He's saying the path forward in your life today is out there. And I'm going with you. You coming or not? Because he's going. Are you putting your heels in? Are you saying I'm going with you? Whatever it costs, wherever it is, whoever it is, I'm going. I'm with you because you're with me. Doesn't that bring us back to John 15? Abide in me, and I in you. That's God being with you in Christ. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. But John 15, 8, as we started this series with, by this God the Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciple. How do I bear much fruit? I abide in him. What's it to abide in him? He's with me, and I'm with him. Let's pray that to be true. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its clarity that we don't have to be ignorant anymore, uninstructed in what the Great Commission is. It's so clear and it's so powerful that it starts with you, Christ, and your absolute sovereignty. And it ends with your promise to be with us through, through all eternity. And so right there in the middle of it, we see our privilege as your followers, as your learners, We've been given every blessing. And what an honor and joy it is. So I just pray for, for myself and for these servants of yours today to go out knowing you're with them. And it's simple to look around and to say, this, this mission I'm on will only be complete once I'm in heaven because then the mission's over. Then there's no more evangelism. Then there's no more disciple making. Then it's just worship of you, God. Then it's just... Fellowship with the saints. So help us to feel the burden that what we're here to do is to go and make disciples. Because this is our one shot. And we don't want to waste it. So help us not to by your power and in your promise. Amen.